Welcome to this week's episode of Fortitude and Truth. If you're just joining us, my name is Nate. I'm here with Andrew. If you've if you are a return visitor, we very much appreciate that you've continued to listen to our educational and hopefully edifying content. Today we've got an exciting show for you. We're going to be tackling a review in our Academia Today spotlight uh, of a book called Nine Marks of a Healthy Church by Mark Dever. Uh, Mark Dever is a is currently a the theologian and senior pastor of Chapel Ch- Chapel Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington D.C. Uh, and he's the president of the nine of Nine Marks Ministry, which is a ministry that he founded in an effort to quote build biblically faithful churches in America. Uh, Dever has also taught at University of Cambridge and uh, served as pastor in Eden Baptist in Cambridge. He earned his Ph.D. In, from Cambridge, his Master's of Theology from Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, his MDiv from Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary as well. Uh, today, as always, we do still have a focus verse for you, which is Hebrews 10, 24, and 25, which say something. Uh, starts with, And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. And we've, we've probably heard that verse before, a couple episodes back now, uh, when we had a discussion about the importance of being a member of a local church, of the importance of what being a Christian means to being a part of the larger body of Christ. And so today we're going to kind of can go circle back to that discussion a little bit, but we're going to do so in a way kind of based on Mark Dever's uh, text, which outlines nine marks. Um, obviously, it's called Nine Marks of a Healthy Church. These nine marks are not in a specific order, so to speak, and I would not put them in a specific order other than I think the first two are kind of central, and Andrew will get into those in, in just a second, but uh, I'll give you them real quick. Uh, Mark 1 starts with expositional preaching, and then gospel doctrine, uh, biblical understanding of conversion and evangelism, a biblical understanding of church membership, biblical church discipline, a biblical concern for discipleship and growth, biblical church leadership, biblical understanding and practice of prayer, and a biblical understanding and practice of missions. Now, one thing I really want to highlight here is, except for the first two, which are clearly Biblical, we talk about expositional preaching and gospel doctrine. Uh, Marks 3 through 9 all have the word biblical in them. And so I think this lines up very well with our show and something that we continue to, to I don't want to say harp on, but to, to hammer home this idea of, you know, everything is founded in Scripture and Scripture leads us and guides us. So we, we should have biblical understandings of all these things. And so these can really help you... Whether you are a new Christian looking for a church home, if you are a Christian who is a little frustrated with your church home and maybe either not sure if it's time to move on or not, maybe this this book might help you make that decision prayerfully. Maybe you know it's time to move on and you're looking for a church and how to find the right church, this might help you. 
or maybe you know maybe this is this book would be a confirmation maybe this discussion today about the book is a, is a confirmation of hey my church does these things we do most of them well maybe this is where i need to stay for right now and obviously don't let a book tell you that i think prayerfully uh through the spirit and through his word he's going to reveal that if it's time to leave um it happens i don't advocate church shopping in any way because ultimately as sheep we don't know what we need sometimes and pastors who are trained and, and god has facilitated that the to help us in, in not knowing what we need because he who is the great shepherd knows better than any of us what we need. So it's not just about likes and desires. It's about being biblical and is your church being biblical? And that's really where our discussions, I think, gonna to lead us to today. Yeah, very well put there, Nate. Um, I, <clears throat> excuse me, that was a very good segue into kind of talking about the book. Uh, that's clearly... Um, Dr. Devers, uh, Devers, I can't, I don't know why I can't pronounce your name, sir. If you hear this podcast, I apologize. Maybe you'll write in and tell me how to pronounce your name, but nonetheless, um, shout out. If anybody knows Dr. Mark Dever, please feel free to pass this yeah. along. <laughs> no, but, um, because I, it, as, as Nate kind of remarked on it, this, this is a very sound book. Um, of course it's not infallible. It's not scripture. Uh, but it's a very helpful tool, and I found I, I really enjoyed reading through it, um, and then re-skimming it for today's uh, show just to re-familiarize myself with the and more in depth. And he goes very in depth, which is a good thing, um, and hits a lot of different subpoints that are important to consider. But yeah, we're in, in this first segment here. We're going to talk about Mark's one through three. Now these are the chapters. So chapters one through three. Chapter one is ca- called Mark one, which is expositional preaching. Chapter 2, which is also called Mark 2, is titled Gospel Doctrine, which doctrine, again, as you remember from our one of our, teach, uh, one of our episodes on um, the attributes of Scripture, and I believe it might have been, it hasn't come out yet, or will come out Friday, um, the part 2 of the progression of Christian journey, we talk about what doctrine is, which is just teaching, so gospel teaching, proper teaching. Mark 3, chapter 3, is biblical understanding of conversion, conversion rather, in evangelism. Now, what do all of these marks share in common? Nate already kind of hit on it in the, in, in the intro. Um, all of these marks center around God's word. Now, Nate, I completely agree with you as far as order. I believe even Dr. Dever, or Dever, my goodness, man, Dr. Dever, um, words this somewhere. It might be in the... Uh, one of the prefaces, it might, prefaces rather, it might be in one of the appendix. I can't remember where, but I believe he speaks to this, um, that there is no necessary order outside of the first one. I know he emphasizes the first one, even in chapter one, you'll notice that. He, um, the one that all others stem from is chapter one or Mark one, which is expositional preaching. And within that chapter, we talk about, he talks about rather the centrality of scripture, um, and what expositional preaching actually is. Um, so we're going to kind of transition. I'm going to focus a little bit, uh, of course, engaged with Nate Moore, um, talking about uh, chapter one. What, what is, so we're going to start out with what the author's definition of uh, expositional preaching. And this is a direct quote from page 42. Now, it's important. If you have this at home and it's not the fourth edition, um, it's, you're going to be off. You're going to be confused. This is the this the one I'm specifically quoting from is from the fourth edition of this book. 
Now, this is on page, it will be found on page 42. This is a direct quote. This is what he, how he defines expositional preaching, and I actually happen to really like it. Um, expositional preaching is preaching that takes for the point of a sermon, the point of a particular passage of Scripture. That's it. The preacher opens the Word and unfolds it for the people of God. Further on page 43, we see a preacher should have this mind, should have his mind rather, increasingly shaped by Scripture. So we see this idea he points out and harps on from the beginning of what expositional preaching is. It's literally opening up and allowing one's sermon to be shaped by the Word of, for example, Mark 1, right? You're going to be focused on the context of what actually God is saying in Mark 1, right? You're not going to bring a topic outside of the scripture. You're going to allow the scriptures to inform you as to what topics should be addressed within the sermon. Um, And I like that, that additional quote, right, from page 43. A preacher should have his mind increasingly shaped by God, or by scripture, by God, same thing, you know? We see, I I like this a lot. And you tell me what you think about this, because this it works on multiple levels here. We see this idea of progression or sanctification, right? That you should look for in your pastors as well, right? The pastors should be shaped further and further by Scripture. You should see that growth in the in their own thinking too, in their own sermons. Almost, you should be able to see over years and over time growth. What, what do you think? No, I think you're absolutely right with that, and I think that's one thing where. I mean, it's as non-pastors, it's hard. I think we we idolize pastors so much, especially in America. It's a very Western thing to do. We we tend to put pastors on a pedestal, and so we just think, oh, you know, they got it all figured out, and they live pretty holy lives all the time. And and I would submit that <laughs> the opposite is true. Um, but at the same time, even though they're qualified to be pastors, and they do live, I mean, obviously they should li- be living holy lives as pastors, but. They have their own walks of sanctification, their own walks of biblical study. And while they, they from the get-go, may understand Scripture more than the average Christian, which they probably should, having been trained in such things, um, they should grow in their sermons. I don't want to toot my own horn, but I would say, looking back at some of the first sermons that I, I preached early on before I even went to seminary, um, when I was allowed some space to do some teaching and my, off my own study, and looking at the the sermons that and the Bible studies that I've recently taught, like <laughs> there's a big difference. Um, sometimes I wonder who that kid was, you know, a few just even just a few years ago. And so it, it really does happen if you're continuing to study and, and continuing to grow. And if there's this stagnation or things are just being recycled over and over, then maybe that should maybe it should raise concern because again, yeah, we should all pastors included should be growing in levels of holiness and levels of, of biblical study and biblical understanding and living biblically. No, it's, I think it's a phenomenal point, which is why when, like, this is like within his, so he, he, he defines expositional preaching and then he goes on for several paragraphs. And I don't mean to say goes on as in he drags on. No, he provides a lot of context. Um, and I, I, unfortunately in this, in our mode right now, I can't go super in depth to the context. But he hits that, and I think that that's a phenomenal point to consider too, right? It's, it points to this idea that you should be not critically looking at your pastors, but you should be able to observe um, a modeled growth even within the pastors, right? And their approach to the Word of God that, that is central, that is the focal point. Um, and in it, from this, we, he talks about four points concerning the centrality of God's Word. So then he goes from 
defining expositional preaching, right, what that looks like, and the importance of it. And to be clear, he does not berate topical sermons, right? Those from time to time will be present, but even those should be taught expositionally. And he breaks, he does a good job of defining that and breaking that down. Um, I think that it's very good. And I, I, it's not that it matters, but I happen to wholeheartedly agree with him in how he emphasizes expositional preaching. And he doesn't demonize topical preaching, um, but even when doing a topical sermon, it needs to be done properly, which would be expositionally, right? Allowing scripture to inform it. Um, and, but anyway, when it comes to four points concerning the centrality of God's word, he talks about number one, this is, these are all subpoints and like subsections, if you will, in chapter one. Number one is the role of God's word in bringing life. Number two is the role of God's word in preaching. Number three is the role of God's word in sanctifying. Number four is the role of the preacher of God's word. So as the first three of those talks about specifically the role of God's word. So this is a great introduction to the foundation that is God's word. How God's word should be the center of everything. Um, and, I, and everything kind of flows from one's understanding, from the proper emphasis, and I would say pedestal, um, that it's scripture alone. Everything else is underneath the authority of scripture. And this, and this is the core foundation in the remaining mark the remaining marks flow from here. And I can't remember where within the chapter, but he even mentions something directly to that effect where this is, if you, he, this is a paraphrase, but he's like, if you get, if you get Mark one wrong, a church may have the other marks tacitly correct, but it would be by complete accident. And even within each of the marks, they would be off because they're not, focused and grounded in, in the centrality of scripture and the and properly worded. I, I, Nate, do you have that quote up? I don't have it up, but I, I definitely remember something of that nature. And you don't have to pull it up. But I think he's absolutely right where if we, basically if we forsake the centrality of scripture, then we may get lucky with some of these other things, but are we really truly being, allowing cent- scripture to be central? Yeah. And absolutely. Like I, I would argue too, like even if you're doing, if you're not doing expositional preaching, which I mean, we we I would say that's kind of part of being scripture being central. Yeah. If you're not doing that, right? Or or really, just as a bigger picture, if scripture is not central, and you're doing church discipline the right way, or you stumble into doing evangelism the right way, odds are you're probably doing it for the wrong reasons, and then it's probably just wrong. Yeah. Right. Because doing the right thing for the wrong reason is still wrong. Right, even in God's eyes, God very much looks at the heart, and and so like, yes, obedience. He he desires obedience, but obviously he desires obedience not just out of compulsion, but out yeah. of love. Um, I just, I don't want to go too deep, but the example of the other son in the parable of the prodigal son. Right, yeah. we we love to focus on the prodigal, but at the same time, the other son was tacitly was obedient to a fault, and he said, "Well, you didn't do any of this stuff for me." Yeah, he idolized like, obedience. Yeah. Right, he, he had this idolatry over obedience because he, he was obeying for the wrong reasons. And there very much was, you could that was revealed at the end. But yeah, I think if we just continue to centralize God's word, the other things will fall into place. Yeah. That's the other thing too, is like even if the other things aren't there, if, if the evangelism is, is a struggle sometimes or if discipline is not necessarily like f- existent, if if you start with the foundation of being central to scripture, it, those things will 
over time, and they, they're not always fast, but over time they will grow out of Scripture because as the body grows, as the leadership grows in Scripture, those things will flow out of it, out of that abundance. No, that's a very, very good point. And like, we'll, we'll hit on, too, on a, l- a lot more on um, part four uh, in chapter seven or Mark seven, which is biblical leadership. Um, but the role of the preacher of God's word, um, and it's not, and he says somewhere in chapter one, and I, I apologize off the top of my head, I can't remember exactly where it's at, but he talks about that it's, it's the preacher should not be just confirming everything he already knows. And te- he should be learning in his study as he's preparing sermons. He should be coming closer and closer to God. He should be further receive or evident further sanctification over time from it. Not from his own personal studies Yeah, those are important, but specifically in the context of the pastoral ministry of, of studying for sermons, of prep for sermons, that it's not, it's more of the sermon that shapes him and his reaction and input, not, not the sermon or not, not him rather that shapes the sermon. And again, I paraphrased and probably butchered that a little bit, but nonetheless, the centrality of that, what that message he was presenting is clear. Um, and again, if you can't like even Nate pointed this out and that's absolutely correct, which I'm sure he's shocked to hear me say that. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but, um, if, if you can agree and come under the authority of scripture in time, those other things will be ironed out. It won't be perfect, and it is, but if you are de- truly dedicated to Scripture, and not just you as an individual, but a, the, I'm talking in, right now in the context of a local body of Christ, um, it, it, these kind of things will eventually come up and will be ironed out by the Word of God because you're holding it in its proper position. And really, as he ends here talking about um, <clears throat> how Mark 1 is the foundation for the rest of the book and is the most important, and I again, I agree. I like how he emphasized it. He rolls right into chapter two or Mark two, which is the uh, gospel doctrine, proper gospel doctrine. Well, to begin, what is the gospel? Right, that, that, that's an important idea. On page sixty-one, um, Doctor Dever gives a pretty good definition, and I'm gonna. It's a rather lengthy, so just stay with me. But I'm gonna, I'm gonna read it. Um, so the the gospel is the good news. Um, Sorry, the good news, rather, is the truth that the one and only God, who is holy, has made us in his image to know him. But we have sinned and cut ourselves off from him. And this great love, God became a man in Jesus, lived a perfect life, and died on the cross, thus fulfilling the law in himself and taking on himself the punishment for the sins of all those who would ever turn from their sins and trust in him. That's important to point out. This is not modalism. Um, uh, that he's not talking. That, that's a heresy that, that I can talk, talk to you, tell you right now. Doctor Dever is not talking about, um, which is denies the triune Godhead because he, we see here that, but he um, in his great love God became a man in Jesus. That that's referring to the love of God the Son, and, and I can tell you that's not modalism. I don't know if you want to expo- me to expound on that at all or. No, because I don't think anybody would notice it was modalism, but you, because I wasn't going to go there. Yeah. Um, well, I just wanted to highlight that because of the way it was worded and, I, and the greater context. That's why I kind of paused there. That's fair. I, I definitely understand that. But yeah, obviously, the triune God and his perfect unity all loved humanity enough to yeah to do what they've done and continue to do for us, even though yeah. we don't deserve it and have not earned it by any stretch it's, of the imagination. Yeah. 
So, in essentially, for those of you who don't know, and there may be a great many of you that don't, modalism is a heresy that teaches that God exists in different modes at different times, um, which, again, denies the triune Godhead, denies how God re- reveals himself to be, and therefore is a heresy. That's obviously not what Dr. Dever was doing here, and I'm pretty sure none of you would have picked up on that. I just wanted to clarify because I wasn't able to give enough of the context, and it could have sounded that way. But anyway, um, he goes on from there, right? So again, the gospel means good news. Um, I believe it's another, another way to put it is evangelion. Uh, I'm not, I believe, is that is that the Greek? No. No. No, it's euangelion. But euangelion. It's, it's, it's okay. It we'll, yeah. we'll forgive you. I, have, your, I have yet to get to the Greek. formal Greek classes. But one day, one day, I will speak only in Greek and Hebrew <clears throat> to make up for this. But anyway, um, so he moves on from identifying and defining the gospel doctrine or got the gospel um, and talks about the biblical theology of the gospel. Um, and, and I have another direct quote here on page 65. We see, the gospel is not something we do, rather something that we proclaim. It is the good news and it's not something that we are doing, rather what God has done. Now, if Nate's trying to follow along, that's a paraphrase. It's a direct quote, but it's different sentences from a large paragraph. Yeah. So can I make one one point on that? Sure. Just to clarify a little bit. Yeah. So it is not, the gospel itself is not something we do. Yes, it's something we proclaim. It's a message, right? The good news is is the message. But we should also live in a way that our lives are centered around it, if that makes sense. Yeah. So, it, yeah, the gospel is nothing, it's not, the gospel, the good news is nothing we have done. We are sinners. We don't deserve any of this. It's all very true. But because of what he has done, because of the gospel that should infect and should influence our lives as Christians. And I and that's not mentioned here. I'm sure it's mentioned elsewhere it, in the book, but it, I, it I just want to make that, yeah. I want to make that clear that, like, the gospel the gospel, the the word gospel is not something we do, but it doesn't mean it has no impact. Yeah. Because really it should, the gospel should be our lives no, in some sense. No, no, and that's a very good point. And in, in many ways he does kind of speak to that. Um, but you're not wrong for clarifying that here. Um, of course I'm not wrong. Where have you been? <laughs> no, but. I've <laughs> been making uh, good points all day. No, he, um, he does mention that, what it looks like to live for Christ um, and the importance. And actually can't remember, I don't know, it's in chapter three. So we talk about a lot more in Mark three uh, conversion and like what that kind of looks like and moving forward onto evangelism. He does hit on that pretty hard. And even within chapter two, um, he does mention that, yeah, while it's not about what his main focus there is, it's not about what we do, i.e. earning salvation. It's a message we proclaim about what God has done. Um, but that's still a very fair point. Um, and he made another good point here. This is, we cannot ignore God's holiness and maintain the integrity of the gospel message. I think that's absolutely correct. It's within this chapter that he goes on talking about the holiness of God. Um, from previous uh, episodes, you can this is you could probably tell by now. I, I believe, Nate, you can tell from both of us that that's a pretty big hot-button issue for us. Something that we're very passionate about is standing properly and understanding the holiness of God. Because God can choose many things to describe himself, but thoroughly throughout Scripture, he describes himself as holy, 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 right? Um, I believe it was R.C. Sproul, Dr. Sproul, the late Dr. Sproul, who um, hit on this. You know, God's not love, love, love. 
He's not mercy, mercy, mercy. God is holy, holy, holy. Um, in one of his uh, sermons and teachings, he taught on that quite a bit, and that was one of his uh, catch phrases, and I, I, I like that a lot. It draws the focus on that. But again, it draws back this idea that we can't ignore that the fact that God is holy and maintain the integrity of the gospel message, uh, meaning that keep it intact the way it, God presented it, the way it needs to be presented. So Jesus reveals how God can forgive our wickedness while at the same time punishing the guilty. And then he talks about at length, I mean at length, a vast majority of chapter 2, he addresses this, this, contradic- this seeming contradiction of God punishing the unrighteous or the unjust um, and Jesus and God's ability to forgive mankind, like those who believe on Christ, like con- addressing that con- contradiction. Um, and it's, he, ultimately, it's in Jesus. Um, Jesus came as both the king and the suffering Messiah, fulfilling many prophecies of the Old Testament. Um, and he de- again, in, in this chapter, that, and I even made a note here in my segment notes, that he deals at length with this question of how can God forgive wickedness and yet not let the guilty go unpunished? And, and he concludes that the proper response to this is the gospel, the whole host of scripture, which is to repent and believe in God. Yeah, any thoughts there, uh, Nate? I mean, yes. <laughs> I mean, I, there's nothing. There's at a certain point. There's nothing to add. You know what I mean? Well, it's not really. I adding, don't want yeah. to to you know overtalk a point if that makes sense. I think that. Um, I mean, obviously, the proper response to like, what's I mean, the proper response to God. So, what's the proper resp- the proper response? Obviously, the Bible says repent and and believe and be saved. But what's the proper response to someone who just saved your life? Like, think about it in terms of that. Like, what would you do if somebody, you know, stepped in front of that bullet that was guaranteed for you, right? That that cross was reserved. We forget. I think we take that for granted sometimes. That cross was reserved for you and it and for me. That's what we deserve. And talk, for all of it. Yeah, people, you know, it's your point. People always talk about fairness and what we deserve. I deserve this. I deserve that. We deserve the cross. Sorry, but continue your thought. That was my thought. <laughs> <laughs> no, but, um, and I, I think he, this is a very good point. Um, and, and please, I implore you to read the chapter, Mark 2, read the chapter, read this chapter, because he goes in pretty good depth and provides a lot of good context. Um, but again, that's that the, the remainder of chapter 2 goes addressing the question, how can God forgive wickedness? Right and not let the guilty go unpunished. Because if you're wicked, as all of mankind is, you're guilty. Um, and he, he addresses well that seeming contradiction. Um, and again, it's the proper response to the gospel, which is to repent and believe in God. Now, we, as we roll on to chapter 3, chapter 3, or Mark 3, is a biblical understanding of conversion and conversion, my goodness, I can't say that word today, and evangelism. So the church universal, speaking in the sense of a, yeah, a of a prospective church, that's that's the that's kind of the view of this right now. It's not talking about the individual; it's talking about how the church views it, which obviously should affect how the individual views it. Um, but right now, that is the specific 
perspective. We're talking about how does a perspective church that you're looking at. I know Nate and I agree wholeheartedly on this, this idea of church shopping is um, very commercially driven and not appropriate. It's more how do you address, and if you feel the Lord calling you somewhere, how do you, what are some biblical um, foundations to look for? And again, that's what this book gives. It gives nine marks to kind of look for that a church is healthy. And again, in this, in this mark, mark three, it's talking about the church's understanding and perspective of conversion, and then from that, evangelism. <clears throat> so, to be clear, this is the position that, I mean, I think this is well put, um, that the church must be clear on the utter need of man to change or convert. Um, that sin is irrevocably, has irrevocably, wow, my goodness, irrevocably, there's the word. I don't know why I can't talk. Maybe it's late in the evening. I don't know. But the sin has irrevocably affected mankind. That apart from the saving grace of God, man can do nothing to alter his dubious state. Um, that, that should be, that is the only proper view of, of man apart from God, is that there's a lot of false ideas in our world. And, and unfortunately, some of them are steeped in the church. And it's very easy to allow this idea of, oh, well, man is mostly good. That, that's, that is a huge red flag. Man is not mostly good. If man was mostly good, Jesus wouldn't need to come and die for us. <clears throat> so conversion is a key part of the gospel. But what is conversion? I'm going to read this definition. We're going to go through this so we can transition to the other marks and keep on with our uh, segment here. But what is conversion exactly? On page 84, Dr. Dever gives a good a definition. It, and this is a direct quote. In conversion, we resign our claim to be the final judges and governors of our own lives. And we acknowledge that the role belongs to God alone. Our past sins need to be forgiven. Our present lives need to be reoriented. Our future destiny needs to be changed from the hell of God's good, from the hell of God's good judgment to the heaven of God's gracious forgiveness and acceptance of us in Christ. What do you think of that definition, Nate? I like it. It's interesting to, that he puts it that way. Um, I think most people don't see um, hell as God's righteous judgment. <laughs> I will tell you that I truthfully grew up thinking. Um, that the one you go to hell, Satan's going to be the one punishing you, but uh, it's not the case. And I think we forget that so often, even as Christians, like the devil's going to be tortured in hell right there with you because he's going to be punished just as you, the unconverted, would be punished or just as we all deserve to be punished. And that grace that we've been given is, is again, all the more sweet because of what we have escaped and because we didn't do anything, and it was freely yeah. given to us. No, that's a that's a very good point. Um, I, and th that's why is Nate is kind of noticing too, probably for the first time. But I I uh, well, I'm talking about for this book review. I used his direct quotes for definitions because so far in all of them, I found his perspective. I don't want to use the word refreshing, but I like the focus of his definitions. Um, I think he highlights things properly. Um, so we see that Christ has, has given many examples of this, right? It, we, it, we see in John eight eleven 11, um, when he's talking to the, uh, the adulterous woman 
and the you know the Pharisees want to stone her, and he and he says, "Has no one found any nothing against you?" Okay, well I don't either. Go and sin no more. Right? This idea that yes, because this is a false. Pre- you'll, you'll see this false presentation of Jesus as accepting and affirming of everyone. Jesus is love. He is love, uh, but not the way the world understands love. Um, and we see this idea that Christ, while yes, he did associate with sinners, he associated with people, the Pharisees, who were the religious elite of the day, would never dare go near because of, quote-unquote, they're dirty. But he would always leave with them changed, right? Or, or, and or a call to, yeah, you are forgiven, now go sin no more. Um, and we see uh, the author further expounds, adding a considerable amount of depth concerning this idea of conversion. Um, and I like this one. This is another one sentence. He adds to this right on page 85. True conversion is a change of mind, but it's not just a change of mind. It's a change of heart, though not a mindless emotional experience. And I think that's a very good way to put it. And in some of his definitions, as we go throughout the rest of this, you'll notice he'll define something by telling you what it's not and then adding to it with what some of the things, components are. And I like that. Um, further, it, revolves, it involves relying on Christ alone. So conversion is an act of God, right? This is, a com- this is a complex idea. This idea of conversion, right? This idea of salvation or conversion is a complex idea, right? But the author goes in a considerable depth on this topic. Right? And it's important to understand that conversion is, in fact, an act of God. The author's contention is great and is truly important to have the proper perspective on conversion, right? The, the church must understand and have a proper foundation built upon this idea of conversion. Um, what, what does it mean to be converted? Is it, and, he, and he also, actually, we'll talk about that next. He moves on in, within this chapter to talk about evangelism. I like how he converted, he you know, coupled together the ideas of evangelism and conversion together. Um, and his definition of evangelism is found on page 89. This is a direct quote. Evangelism is one person telling another person the good news of how he or she can be reconciled to God through faith in Jesus Christ. And he does a very good job of reordaining a proper perspective on evangelism, right? Because people can get beaten down. Like they'll share, he uses, he uses many stories um, that I, I just can't share due to time constraints, but they do a really good job of illustrating this. Um, he talks about, you know, there's someone who shared the gospel with someone for 30 years and you get discouraged because they're not responding the way that you would hope them to, right? Um, and he does a good job of shifting and refocusing what our perspective should be on just sharing the good news. We should be joyously sharing the good news and not so much worried about, it's not up to us, um, the results. Right? That's not something that God charges us with. But he does charge us with the sharing of the good news. So there is a need to evangelize. right? And, th- and he does a great job, again, of hitting on this. It's not just pastors. Yeah, p- people, and they talk about in Ephesians 4, he gives some as evangelists, some as teachers, preachers. This idea that, that me, and Nate hit on this, I can't remember which episode it was, and he did a good job, he did a good job talking to this. It, that exists, yes, but that doesn't mean that it's only those offices that are responsible for evangelizing, right? Are we, are we as pastors, are they to lead or set a model? Of course. But each individual believer, a member, is responsible and commanded. I want to, I want to say that again. You are commanded to evangelize. In other words, share the good news. Tell people about what Jesus did for you. Um, and again, not an anecdote. While your testimony is valuable, you need to talk about Scripture when you're sharing the good news. 
Um, and he did a, he, had a, he closed this chapter with a very in-depth dialogue about the sinner's prayer and spontaneous baptism, like discussing the differences of, of okay, well, we talk about this idea of the sinner's prayer and how it's come under this idea of, a, oh, that prayer is not found in Scripture, and then now the rising um, fad, not fad, but I'll use the word fad because you guys will understand what that mean by that, of spontaneous baptisms where any, you know, we just have a baptism event and whoever you know, wants to be baptized can be baptized. They can profess, you know, faith in God and, and proper understanding of the foundational needs for sanct- uh, salvation and, and, and conversion. Um, he does a good, it's a very interesting uh, dialogue and um, I would recommend focusing on that for a little bit just if you're interested. It's very, and then he transitions from that into the fourth mark, which I will hand over to Nate, but that's a biblical understanding of the church, of church membership rather. Yeah, and we we've been spent a lot of time I think on this this mark just because we've spent a lot of time on that in our episode on uh, the progression of the Christian journey part one where we talked about the importance of getting plugged into a, a church and the things that means. Um, but he does hit a couple things. He he starts off by defining what a church is, and then for that we really need to take a good look at the the New Testament for that. Right, obviously Christ calls his church. Um, he says, on this rock, which is Christ, um, or the truth of knowing who Christ is, is his church. Um, but you look at what Paul Paul says as far as he addresses each church locally, right? You have the church in Ephesus. You have the church in the, uh, Philippi, the church in Colossae, um, or the seven churches that are addressed in Revelation uh, by John. But then you also have Paul's dialogue about the church, um, kind of universal, right? And the, the the word there, I believe, is the same that's used. I'd have to pull up my Greek New Testament to to confirm that through some further study, but I believe the word there is the same. And if that's the case, then they're really, you know, just uh, that's kind of serves as a reminder that local the local church is just a a piece, you know, is its own member, so to speak, of the larger body of Christ. And there's some importance to that. Obviously, we don't do life alone. We weren't created to do life alone, going all the back, all the way back to Genesis. Um, but he gives some good reasons, and I just want to list a few here, as to not just what church members, he says it's what they're required to do. Um, yes, I, I would say they probably are, and Scripture says these things of church, but I also think they are really how the church functions, right? They're part of being a member of the church. They're part of the Christian experience. They are, and really Christians should want to do them, right? The more, again, the more you allow scripture to be central in your life, the more you'd want to do something. Uh, And some of these things, and he lists a whole bunch of references with all these. So if you want to check those out, those are in chapter four. Um, Care for one another physically and spiritually. Watch over one another and hold one another accountable. Edify one another. uh, Love one another. Bear with one another. Um, including not suing one another. Interesting tidbit there. Uh, pray for one another. Keep away from those who would destroy the church. That is not sinners. That is not um, the unsaved. That is more referring, especially if you look at the references, that is referring to false teachers. They would destroy the church. Uh, we do want to keep away from false teachers. We want to call out false teachers where applicable. Uh, reject evaluating people by worldly standards. Uh, that's something is is easily guilty if we, if we judge people the way the world judges people, but God clearly uh, does not. Look at Samuel and Saul and uh, David and that whole interesting diatribe. Uh, and to get, so, and contend together for the gospel and then be, and being examples of one another, right? 
uh, the, the passage for today says to build one another up, right? We build one another up in love. We, we speak the truth in love so that we all become strong. We all become more like Christ uh, to, prevent, to present one holy and blameless bride uh, to the bridegroom at the last day. So obviously we have responsibilities together and doing life together is one of those like, I don't know how to say this. It's like easier and harder. It's easier because it's some things are easier to do when everybody's doing it, right? Especially if we're all doing it the right way. But at the same time, life together with fallen human beings just becomes difficult because we're also all sinners. So like learning to bear with one another through the tough times and through the sin and through the the complaining, but also being able to, to come out on the other side knowing that we are still more like Christ. And so he goes a little bit further in this chapter, and this is where... This is more of a, I think, a church-by-church basis sort of thing. He just gives you some examples of, like, what church membership actually looks like. Um, And I I like some of them more than others, I would say. uh, So one of the things he says is church membership includes baptism. And the answer is yes, but I think, and I think he says this, that it's not about being baptized at that church specifically, but being baptized at all. Uh, at our current location, that's that's the precedent is you don't have to be baptized at this location, but you have to have been baptized. Um, and you have to be able to square that. Um, and so that's, that's important. I mean, that's, we say repent and be baptized. Like if you really want to call yourself a believer, then you have to have been baptized. I don't want to get into the discussion of spontaneous baptism today, so we're going to we're going to steer away from that. You can read the book on that because I don't want to have that discussion not today anyway. Uh we'll find I'm sure we'll find time for that one in our in our lengthy list of episodes. Um another thing he adds is in writing by signing a statement of faith and church covenant. Um I that I think that is a little a little superficial and not too much. I I do like the idea. Um at our current location, you have to just make a profession of faith that you kind of adhere to the... Um, it's an interdenominational church, not to go too far, but uh, you basically have to adhere to the central tenets of Christianity, and obviously we, we, agree on, we disagree on some secondary issues, and that's very much open in this body, and that's okay. So, But we, we profess that we believe in those central tenets, and that's really what's required. It's not a written document. It's not anything that's signed, at least it isn't or wasn't for me. Um, but it's something that is at least, at least reviewed with the pastor. We don't have to, to, to sign any sort of covenant. I do think uh, the idea of signing a covenant is interesting to me. I think that that kind of um, puts some more, um, what's the right word, not authenticity, uh, accountability a little yeah, bit. To yeah, I was like, going to say that, yeah. To, to your decision to, to join a specific church of um, we talk about church shopping a couple of times already, but yeah, the, cause some people who start church shopping never stop church, church shopping. And then, so this is one way to like, hey, you're going to sign on the dotted line and this is going to be your home for better, for worse, for, you know, a, not a set amount of time, but a lengthy amount of time that you, you're ready to make this commitment to this church for this. I, we'll use the word season. I think is appropriate. I think you're right. I think I like the word commitment that you hit on there. That's I was going to say that. Like, while I understand it can be superficial, um, I think it's valuable because, like you said, it highlights a commitment. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I think the word season is also very applicable there. And and he he lists some more, and I agree with most of these, but he he does so in the context of his own church to give examples, um, and then you can kind of take them for what they're worth. Uh, one is attend service regularly. That's that's right out of Hebrews ten twenty five. We've already really talked about that of not forsaking these. Uh, the King James is not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as the habit of some is. We're post COVID now. That gets a little dicey. I understand their circumstances um, that prohibit some people from joining regularly in person. And those are, they happen, I'm sure. But I, unfortunately, I think that this technology has provided a crutch for people to just live stream every Sunday. And I would very much caution, I, I would not prohibit it, but I would very much caution against that. Yeah. I think assembling of themselves together is very much in person to be able to grow because you're not really growing. But from besides hearing the sermon, you're not really growing much when because you're not able to fellowship with your believers, at least not in yeah. in that building in that setting. Um, if you're able to facilitate ways to fellowship with them outside, then then amen. I think that's that's important too because we often and he doesn't go into it here, um, but we often focus so much on the building of the church and not the people who are the church. And wait, and the church is not a building, right? <laughs> um. I th- it was not it was not Mark Dever. There was another um, theology book I read that was he basically he was, has prohibited his children from using hey from saying hey we're going to church on Sunday. I grew up doing that, and so it's, it's in my vocabulary. But they attend worship service on Sunday as members of the church, and I think that's a wonderful example. Yeah. Can I adhere to that? No. Do I? would say you have to do that? No. But I think that's an interesting way to put it to free frame the idea of church as the people and not the building. Yeah. Um, it's a very Western understanding of the church. Right. Uh, his, his attending communion, he says particularly, I would say again, regularly uh, would be important. Um, members meetings, obviously being a good steward of your church would be, again, the same thing. I would I would advocate for that. A level of commitment. Yeah. yeah. Uh, pray regularly, give regularly. Um you can debate on tithes and offerings all you want. I'm not here for that today as well. Uh, but again, I think giving regularly in either case is, is pretty much yeah. straightforward in, in the New Testament. And as, as well as like the whole, Paul's idea of pray without ceasing. Yeah. The and whole, so, no, no, you're good. I'm sorry. Just the whole idea that, you know, that's your responsibility to the church. How do you really support the church without, you know, giving to it? And, and and it's there's a big debate too. I don't want to get too far in the weeds about pastors being paid and and different things like that and and how we support pastors who who do this for a living. Um, obviously, Paul did not. Paul Paul made his living elsewhere, and I, I very much have a heart for bivocational pastors. But I very much support the idea of full time ministers as well, and and that's one way to continue to to push for full time ministers is to to allow the church to be able to pay ministers full-time to devote themselves to yeah. that cause. Well, I mean, and, and Paul also outlines why he did not take a wage. Um, it was to set an example to the to the newly established churches. I mean, at so one point he did take, you know, uh, offerings for when he was in need and did live off of that. And he, he, I can't remember where. I believe it's in Romans, I want to say 15. I could be off. Um but those who labor to your spiritual needs, you are indebted to them to their physical needs. Um, and that's something that Paul hit on in a couple of different places. Um, just to, as a reference, just to add a little more to that. 
Mm-hmm. So I yeah I think but understanding your role as a as a biblical church member is important. I think that we need to continue to just grow through that as part of our our growth together, as part of growing together in Christ, as part of becoming more like Christ and allowing Scripture to lead us is to understand that from a biblical standpoint. He does a really good job of of hammering that home. But again, finding where Scripture lines up with that, where the church you're at or prospective church kind of sees that is is interesting. I, again, not I don't know if that's make or break on, on church decision as we kind of trickle down away from the centrality of Scripture. Obviously, Scripture is central through all of these, but as these issues specifically themselves kind of are secondary issues, if that makes sense. Okay. Uh, the next mark, mark number five, biblical church discipline. This is probably the hardest one, I think, for a lot of people, um, myself included. Um I'm more of a doom and gloom guy, I think, sometimes when it comes to discipline. And we very much see discipline as negative. Everybody, when we talk about church discipline, wants to talk about Matthew 18. And rightly so. I mean, obviously, Jesus clearly outlines it in Matthew 18. Paul does so in 1 Corinthians as well. But he brings up, he starts actually his discussion on church discipline with Hebrews chapter 12. And I think that frames this in a way where we have to remember that not all discipline is negative. That we are disciplined also to to build us like god disciplined those whom he loves so if he didn't love us he wouldn't discipline us i mean my parents have told me that a hundred times i didn't believe them sorry mom and dad i know you're probably listening to this at some point um but no i didn't believe you and you told me that you love me when you disciplined me all the time i, I had a hard time with that one i understand that now as, as, as a grown man that you loved me and i know that if it weren't for you i would not have turned out the way i did so th- i am very much thankful for all of that uh, as trying as those times may have been. But in any case, right, so if you go to Hebrews chapter 12, you'll see the idea of of God being the one who disciplines, but not not out of spite, not out of vengeance. Um, but he, he says, God disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Um, sorry, I, I just, on this note of discipline... Now, this is not biblical, but the Marine Corps has a definition of discipline that I had to say in the form of a ditty at 4 a.m., screaming at the top of my lungs. Discipline is weakness leaving the body. I'm sorry. No, I'm sorry. I, I butchered that. Discipline is instant willing obedience to all orders. That was what I repeated over and over and over and over and over and over again. Um, there's a biblical context to that. If you apply, If you apply the phrase correctly, not scripture, but the phrase correctly that i think it kind of instant willing obedience the one you butchered is it's pain is pain, weak. pain is pain weakness, is weakness yes. i, I combine both of those because we said that all the time yes. and discipline brings pain and guess what that means you're weak and the weakness is leaving you <laughs> yeah absolutely uh, but also too the idea of so he talks about matthew 18 and first corinthians 5 about if your brother sins against you go to him uh, just you and yourself, and then if he doesn't listen, if he if he accepts it, then great. If not, you know, you bring a few more brothers, and then if worse comes to worse, you bring it before the church. Uh, it, a couple things there. I think it's important to remember that that is not just pastors. Like he doesn't say if your brother sins against you, go get a pastor, right? Your brother sins against you, just go to your brother. If you have to involve pastors, right? Or if the pastor sins against you, go to your pastor and say, hey, look, look this is what you did to me. And if you need to 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 further that, then you need to further that. Um, 
I don't think a lot of churches don't like to practice. Churches, I think, are on both sides of this, this issue as we see them today. Um, some churches are too far into discipline and love discipline and, and probably over-discipline, and other churches don't discipline at all. And I, I think there's a balance there, and it, it, it yeah. needs to be biblical. It needs to be healthy. Um, there's a proper tension that should be there. Yeah. I think the the biggest thing to remember, especially as the body of Christ, is we don't want... It's right. He says, "Go." He tells, to your example, the the woman who was caught in adultery. Is he says, "Go and sin no more." That's his command to us, right? Alistair Begg says that he, he says, "Come as you are, but you can't stay as you are." And so, if you're staying as you are, you're detracting from the body of Christ. And at a certain point, that does need to be dealt with, yeah. right? It's it's basically along the lines of basically being a false teacher with your life and your actions is is being unrepentant. And there's a difference between two, I, being caught in habitual sin and being unrepentant versus struggling with sin and and being repentant but but having a genuine struggle. And those are, again, hard to sometimes define and determine. And so we just need to be very careful and be very gracious in some of those instances, but we also need to be very discerning and allow Scripture to, to guide us. So he does give some good principles as to why you should, though, uh, how in practicality is, is up for debate. Um, but it's for the good of the person being disciplined, right? Sometimes, how do I know if I've sinned if no one tells me, right? We're so clouded in our own sin and we're so sinful ourselves sometimes that we don't know when we've sinned. And then somebody looks at you like, dude, you can't do that. That that helps, right? That's why it's part of being being doing life together is you have people who see your sin that, that obviously the Holy Spirit will reveal things to you too through other means, but that's part of it. Um, also for the good of other Christians as they see the danger of sin, um, kind of maybe as a, a warning, so to speak of like, Hey, like this person's caught up in this and they've been disciplined. Maybe you don't want to be disciplined. So maybe just don't get caught up in this, um, for the health of the church as a whole, uh, for the corporate witness of the church, we talk about being holy for the glory of God as we continue to reflect his holiness. To that note, you know, God is holy, as we talked about numerous times now, but God tells us, you know, be holy for he is holy. The actual quote is, be holy for I am holy. But obviously I wanted to clarify that that was God saying that, not me. Correct. But in any case, he makes makes a pretty adequate case for the need for discipline. Again, the biblical understanding of church discipline, the biblical reasons behind church discipline. Again, he, he makes a very good case. The way again that plays out in churches is is again very it, widely debated is very on a very big spectrum. So just but again, you just need to be careful and be aware. That's really why we're using all these things as kind of a platform is is to make you aware that these things are are important, but it also you know it's easy to get fixated, like you said. Um, yeah, like just in general, it's easy to get fixated whether it be on discipline. It might be on. Um, uh, secondary doctrine, not doctrine, but secondary, I guess, secondary doctrine. It's very easy to get fixated on that thing and that that becomes, this is what our church does. Well, no. Scripture mm-hmm. tells you what your church should do and it's attention. Um, and, that, and correct me if I'm wrong, Nate, but I know in the cha- a lot of the chapters, he uses a lot of stories as mm-hmm. context, add context to things, which yeah. kind of helps because it really is situation dependent on how some of these things play out. Absolutely. 
again with the same thing with church discipline too right like i feel like some people are like oh we practice church discipline but we you just never hear about it like well then are you actually practicing discipline because at some point you probably hear about it otherwise you're not really practicing discipline at least not for the benefit of the body it may benefit the believer who's being disciplined it may benefit those involved but it's not benefiting everybody and i think that's that's a shame that that's not uh done that way not that we should be excommunicating people left and right i am not advocating for that in the slightest, but I would say in the same way we would not really want to see, like if, nope, I'm just not going to go there. Sorry, uh, my thoughts for a later time. Uh, the last, the mark, not the last mark, the sixth mark is a biblical concern, concern for discipleship and growth. If we went really just back to the Great Commission and talk about, you know, making disciples of all nations, it's it's. Just that's that statement is t- in teaching them to obey everything I've commanded. That is twofold. We talked about that a couple weeks ago in, in part two of mm, the progression of the Christian journey is that it's evangelism, but it's also making disciples, you know, is followers of Jesus. So they start being followers of Jesus. You don't just stop being followers of Jesus. There's 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 a progression there. So we have to continue to be disciples of Jesus and be made into better disciples of Jesus and grow as disciples of Jesus. And then that idea of growth really stems from the Old Testament, and he does a really good job of of, of talking about that and having that discussion. Um, but it's it's funny, right? So his is a biblical practice of growth. His subheadings are expositional preaching and gospel doctrine. What a novel concept. <laughs> Wow, I didn't see that coming. <laughs> right? Right? So all but all these things and even he actually uses all of his chapters as as subheadings for growth, but like all these things are areas for growth. Right? You talk about scripture being the guide. Scripture helps us grow, the spirit helps us grow, but it it we all we also grows us through action, through fellowship, through doing. But I think that's the important thing of of Spiritual growth still needs to be performed by a leader, and we'll get into leadership uh, in a little bit here. But so it does need to be facilitated a little bit in that manner. But growth, you know, it's the scripture also says iron sharpens iron. So even if it's not a pastor, like somebody in that body is going to help you grow. It'll be it'll probably the, it'll probably be the pastor and somebody, right? It'll always be God, right? Behind that, you know, it'll be the spirit working through those people working through you to sharpen you to refine you let's not forget that but at the same time people themselves are being used to sharpen you to help you sharpen you and you are used to help sharpen them and it's it's again just fascinating to me that god would use such in impure creatures uh such finite fallible creatures to spread his word to to save us from eternal damnation to be a part of his plan is just the more you, the more you continue to just plumb that, the more mind blown that continually oh, yeah. am. And that's saying, so we just, if your church isn't doing something to disciple and to grow you as an individual believer or as the body collective, um, there's some caution there that they're not doing that. And again, it has to be biblically founded, but Here's here's some thoughts for you. If and again, Western churches swing one way or the other. Some churches are very seeker friendly and are very good at evangelism, suck at disciple making once people get in the door. 
other churches tend to be less seeker friendly, do less evangelism, but are really good at making disciples who are already here. Can we just combine those churches to like make them one and have the seeker friendly people? Maybe some of them do, some of them don't water down the gospel. So let's be careful there. But like, you know, give them a good gospel approach and help them make disciples better. And then the seeker friendly people can help the people who suck at evangelism be better at evangelism. And then we can help them, you know, it should be give and take. Unfortunately, it hasn't gone that way, I feel like, in, in the American church. But I think that would be just great to see because some churches are really good at making disciples in house, but are not so great at, 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 at going to the community. Right. And then vice versa. So that would be one thing on the list of, of biblical marks to just keep an eye out for, I think. And, and be a, even if it's not a deal breaker, just, just also it's important to be aware of these things. Yeah. I think that's very, very solid. Um, yeah, it would be great if we could have that. Um, and in reality, I think that stems from, as we roll into the next up, uh, next last remaining marks here, uh, before we dive into that more, um, I think the whole idea of we have seeker-friendly and we have more discipleship-making of the body that's really deep doctrine, you know, um, I think it's we have an improper view of the church universal, that we are actually on the same team, that we're not fighting and competing with each other which is somewhat a Western ideal, which I think is misapplied personally. But nonetheless, we'll get into that at a later time. So, as we, wow, excuse me. As we transition to the closing of the book, uh, we'll, I'll be covering Mark 7, or Mark 7 through 9. So Mark 7 is biblical church leadership. Mark 8 is a biblical understanding and practice of prayer. And Mark 9 is a biblical understanding of the practice and practice of missions. Now, when we look at Biblical leadership. Um, when we're here, actually, in the in, in the book here in the text, um, we see that he starts really with the idea of the crisis of leadership we're witnessing, um, and he had, and then he steps into addressing it. Right um, in the first step, he said, "This is a direct quote." Um, and this is on page 168. Part of the way such a crisis should be addressed is by examining the character of the pastor. Um, such an appro- approach will be in a, as unpopular as it, as it is untried. So in other words, it's going to be very unpopular when we start talking about character, right? And this kind of stems in back to, I believe it was Mark 1. Yes, it was Mark 1. Um, on that fourth point of the centrality of the gospel, talking about the, the, the preacher's role. Um, in it, right? To 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 be devoted to study, to present it kind of like a waiter. Pre- I believe this is Doctor MacArthur actually it's a direct quote, but the, uh, the preacher and the pastor in is is a waiter that is delivering the food. He's not doing any of the of the uh, making of the food, any of that. He's delivering what the food is. Um, and I know I paraphrased that, but that was I know Doctor MacArthur, but nonetheless. <clears throat> And he rolls into this, and we'll focus, he focuses on, as he addresses this, this crisis of leadership, uh, on five aspects. Aspect one is the, con- the congregational context of pastoral leadership. Uh, two is the, it's biblical, the biblical qualifications for leadership, right? Um, and, the, and number three is its charismatic nature. Uh, number four is it, the leader's Christ-likeness, the, the, the need for Christ-likeness. And number five is its relationship to God's na- nature and character. 
Um, we see in the congregational context, we see the Bible's discussion of church leadership always assumes a congregational context, um, which I think is very fascinating. It's true. Uh, we're, we are in a congregation. We're in an assembly. Um, so, and, and he goes on. It's, it's, it is quite simply the church, that is the assembly of those individual believers who are the church. Um, and he goes on talking about how leadership revolves inside of a context, right? It doesn't happen in a vacuum. Uh, and also, and I think he, I can't remember exactly where it's at, uh, but he talks about the individual's responsibility as well. Um, he talks about an anecdote where he got up and walked out loudly um, from a, te- a false teacher, right? He's, and his point is, is that as members of the body, you assent to whatever's being taught to your, to your leadership, right? And if they are bad leaders, if, they are un- if they're not qualified biblically, if they are false teachers, you are partly responsible for them being there, um, which I thought was a very interesting point um, <clears throat> within that context. And as he goes on, we go, he moves into, sorry, it's loading here. I want to get the actual subheading. He goes into church leadership and its biblical qualifications. And obviously he spends a lot of time in 1 Timothy 3, which makes sense, talking about noticing too, highlighting that it's personal character traits. It is that, that, that just similarly to how in chapter one, we talk about the pastor's mind should be continually sharpened by the word of God and continually shaped by God's word. Well, similarly, it's that continued sanctification you should be able to see in his life. Now, are you looking for a, I, I warn you, this is 10, this is like, Nate mentioned this, I can't remember when today, but he mentioned this. It's easy to idolize the pastor. Um, I want to clarify, and as I'm sure Dr. Deaver would as well, you're not, and I think he does in the text here, but you're not looking for perfection, okay? You're not looking for a perfect pastor because none exist. You are looking for those that are continually seeking God and growing with God, um, that display the fruit of the Spirit, as we see in in Galatians 5. Um, Excuse me. But he rolls in next to uh, the charismatic nature of the pastoral pastoral leadership, and, it, and it's important. I'm going to outline his his uh, caution by charismatic. This is a direct quote. I do not mean a particular supernatural experience, such as speaking in tongues. I'm not going to read the Greek word, but the Greek word simply means a gift of of grace, or the gift of God's grace. So in the Bible, it is clear that God's Spirit gives His church gifts in order to build His people up in faith. So. We see this idea that they're gifted preachers, right? They're gifted leaders. And that rolls right into the Christ-likeness, right? We, we see the gift of leadership, the gift of, of preaching and teaching, right? Gifted to teach. Um, and his dedication, right, to Christ himself, who is the head of the church. Um, following his example, and all of, uh, Jesus Christ is ultimately the leader of the church universal in every particular local congregation. That's a direct quote. So it's no surprise, this is a continued quote, and, I, and this is really good, so I want to read it. It is no surprise, then, that inside local congregations, the leaders are to reflect the character of Christ. In other words, and I, off the top of my head, I want to say it's in 1 Corinthians, but I could be off. You know, Paul, or maybe it's not, maybe it's Colossians. Nope. Anyway, um, Paul implores the church, hey, follow me as I follow Christ. That, that, that idea, he's setting the example of what it looks like to be a Christ-like leader. Like, follow me as I'm following Christ. Because Christ is the example. And you should be emulating, and Paul often did this, 
um, to call, he called people to follow his example, uh, as, what it means to be a follower of Christ. And that, that a pastor should be able to do that and should inspire that. And then lastly, um, we look at the relation, and this ties in directly really well and flows really well into the relationship of the church leadership to God's nature and character. Right? And this is him concluding the look, his look at church leadership. He said, we should consider how the exercise of such leadership relates to God's nature and character. Right? And he does a good job of pointing out it's not, a fi- it's not finally just a matter of church politics. Right? Politi- it, it's not about that. Right? It's about um, recognizing the fallen nature of human authority and the fact that authority can be abused is a good and healthy thing. Right? It's identifying that, okay, this is something that can happen. And we should be looking for someone who understands, you know, pastors, pastors and a leadership team that understands the authority comes from God. And they handle the authority given the office of leadership, whether it be head pastor, associate pastor. They understand, or elder, if they're appointed as an elder, they understand that office carries authority, but that authority is not organically theirs. It is God's. And they are responsible and have a duty to use it the way God wants them to use it. As we close out this chapter, and as Mark, uh, Nate, do you have anything to add? Any thoughts? I think that that's why accountability is so important in leadership. We've seen so many, and you talk about the epidemic that's going on with church leaders right now, we idolize pastors, is two things. is We see church leaders fall, and what happens when we idolize somebody who falls, like it ruins our world. When like, we're fallen human beings and we don't idolize pastors. Like, yeah, it's, it's still going to hurt. But at the end of the day, like they weren't doing what they were supposed to do. And now we can, it's a little bit easier to pick up the pieces on the second hand. Like, should we be ordaining these people? Probably not. And some of the people who are pastors probably weren't ordained or should not have been ordained and were not like adequately screened. Uh, and then the flip side also, we're not adequately held accountable. I look at, um, I'm going to name drop here. I'm going to, uh, Stephen Furtick, who came out of Southern or Southwestern or Southeastern Seminary. I went to Dallas. Maybe Dallas. No, I, I'm sorry. He I mean, went to yeah, a big name yeah. seminary and he graduated and that's great. And I would now label him a heretic. Um, straight I mean, I up. I disagree. Um, and I, I don't say that lightly, I, but I've just heard enough from him and, and his basically rejection of, of people not being inherently fallen and his idea of his theology is kind of going like oneness Pentecostal and modalist a little bit and a lot of it. And, but part of that comes from a lack of like pastoral oversight, a lack of accountability, like who holds his man accountable uh, not God. I mean, not at least not, you know, he doesn't feel he's accountable to God. That's what I was about to say. Yeah. He, God also does, but he'll be held accountable to the day of judgment and that's fine. But at the same time, like he, are there other pastors who are coming alongside him who are trying to help him? Uh, I, I look at Justin Peters, and Justin Peters does some excellent work on on calling out false teachers and, and calling out some of these people. Yeah, well, and I, some of them have responded to him, and some of them have have a lot of them have rejected his being called out as false teachers. But that's the problem with um, with people who who have no accountability, who have no kind of oversight or any kind of respect that they they lose that and they kind of just go their own way and and not all people end up like that i'm not saying that but like there's a an inherent danger to something like that that if they're not accountable to anybody that the likelihood that they will fall in one way or another whether through heresy or sexual sin or any other sort of of sin that disqualifies them from 
uh, pastor that should disqualify them pastoral leadership um, is made evident. And so you just, if your church is practicing discipline, these things are probably not concerns from the pulpit as far as, as leadership is concerned, because if they're practicing discipline among church members, they're, they're definitely practicing leadership at the highest level, or at least they should be. Yeah. But at the same time, if leadership's not being practiced on every level, or sorry, discipline's not being practiced on every level, then it's probably not being practiced by leadership either. And that's, so that should be some cause for concern. Yeah. No, I think that's a very that good was way. To, no, 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 that was very good. No, and uh, just to be clear, I'm sure Nate would agree with this, but you know, correct me if I'm wrong. But when we name, if we name drop someone like that and label them a false teacher, say marking or void, it, it, to be clear, it's not because we hate that person. Um, we love them, but they are teaching very false and dangerous things. Another one I would add to that list is Andy Stanley. Um, I think it's safe to say at this point, the dude is straight up just teaching false nonsense. Um, and it's really a shame because his father, Dr. Charles Stanley, was a steadfast, faithful preacher of the Word of God. And it's just such a shame to see what he's done. He's become, at first, like when you look at his history, and we'll transition to the next uh, mark here in a second. But when you look at Andy Stanley's history, he started out as a seeker-friendly. And this is a good example of <laughs> a seeker-friendly where it's dangerous. Um, at this point, he straight up as disassociated from the authority of Scripture um, he outlines this third way when it comes to sexual sin and how we view it and all this nonsense. And that's what it is. And Andy, if you ever do hear this, it's you're teaching nonsense. Um, I, I don't say that as someone who feels superior. I'm saying that because scripture does not teach that. Um, and if you do follow any, either of these men, and there are others, um, if you honestly want to list um, Justin Peters, uh, does a very good job. His ministry does a very good job of lovingly addressing false teachings. And mm. he does. What was that? Sorry, loving. I would not necessarily use the word lovingly. Um, sometimes I think Justin can get a little aggressive. I like again. I, I love Justin Pierce as a whole. Yeah. I think he does some great work. I just I do have some genuine concerns about his his zeal. Sometimes after going That's after fair. false teachers. Yeah. Um, I, I I do admire it. I think he again. So he might get a little aggressive sometimes. So okay. I would be careful with the word love. I think genuinely he's probably pretty good. But yeah. again, well, I I would endorse Justin Peters far quicker than I would endorse Stephen Furtick or Andy Stanley. Yeah, just to be well, clear. And, and yeah, I mean, at least in the things I've heard, he uh, he addresses firmly um, the topics and call labels them what they should be labeled. Um, but that that's fair. I, I, I'm not going to push back against that. I, it, there are times where it can be a little bit over the top. But nonetheless, he does have a good list. Um, and I'm off the top of my head, I don't know all the all the um, ministries he works with and the men he works with, but they're all rather solid. At least all the ones I've heard are rather solid. And his webpage, um, which we can drop in the description, lists some tools and how to navigate. Um, he's right now doing something on Prosperity Gospel and NAR, which be very helpful and I would recommend and NAR for those of you who are uninitiated and that's okay is the new apostolic reformation um, mark and avoid that as well anyway as we close this idea of, of proper leadership and, and looking for healthy leadership we roll in he rolls in I like how all of these roll well and smooth off one another because um, then mark 8 is a biblical understanding and practice of prayer um, which should be obviously modeled from leadership but um, the, 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 uh, his, his simple definition of prayer is 
just talking with God. Now he does outline that this is a very simple definition. Um, and you, you could go on for a long time talking about the intricacies of prayer. Um, and he also out further outlines that prayer can be done by anyone, anywhere. So you're not limited to a specific place or a specific person that can do it. Um, then he outlines, talks about like prayer that works. Um, and the prayer, in other words, prayers that God hears, right? Um, and ultimately he addresses the problem like with Paul when he talks about the thorn in the flesh that he prayed would go away but didn't. Like why did God not answer that prayer? Um, I'm not going to go into the depth because we could spend, again, a very long time talking about prayer. But it, it's a very interesting dialogue and he goes back over it. And really it, it all boils down to prayers that God hear are in line with his word, right? Now, for example, when people pray, right, and they, oh, God will give it to me. Well, they, they often assess prayers and the outcome of prayers with human and earthly perspective instead of the eternal heavenly perspective. Um, instead of looking at, okay, well, this is what I thought it would look like. Well, you need to you need to unconditionally surrender that when you offer a prayer to the Lord and you come to the Lord. You know, unconditionally surrender your own expectations because you're tacitly admitting that you don't know what's best for you. And that's true, you don't. Just like I don't, just like Nate doesn't, we don't always know what's best for us. God does. So we need to unconditionally surrender that. Um, Nate, do you have anything to add on that? I know we can go very much in depth on this, but and he also talks about his prayer work. But and it, it, hint, it does work, by the way, in case you're wondering. It does. I would <laughs> say that it changes you far more than it changes God. Um, well, maybe circumstances. And it, yeah, prayer changes. I think R.C. Sproul says prayer changes things. Um, but again, is that taught from the pulpit? Is that taught to build the body through small groups, through Bible studies at the church? Like, is that is that a belief among people in that church body? Um, that's something again to look for. Is is do they practice prayer in a way that is is edifying? That is helpful. That is is really in tune with the Word of God and. I would say, if we look at our current context, that we, if you look at a given service, we pray like five times. <laughs> um, um, pastor comes in, does some announcements. We release, before we even sing anything, we pray. Um, we usually pray we'll, for another body, too, we'll, which we'll, is nice. Yeah, we, we do something that I very much ad ad admire that is part of Church Universal. We choose a different local local body every week, and we, we pray for them. And then the pastor will send a letter um, say, hey, we want you, you know, we, we're praying for you. We want to encourage you, um, but things like that to just to, to strengthen bonds across denominational lines, which are kind of divided sometimes. And so it's nice to see that. And then we'll pray. So we'll do like a prayer for the offering. If we do communion, we pray for communion. Um, we have a member-led prayer that kind of takes place between singing and the sermon. Um, that actually both Andrew and I are on a rotation for that, which is, is really a good time. Look we, at your name you, dropping. <laughs> I know, right? We, but it's one where like we, we get to share prayers and praises from the congregation that they submit. And then, you know, we have a monthly prayer focus and, and we can and kind of lead the congregation in like a prayer of generic kind of repentance and set the tone for the sermon. Um, the pastor who's preaching usually prays before and or after the sermon as well. And so, like, you just get yeah. prayer everywhere here. And so where we're at, we, we definitely think this is one of the things that is, is very strong here is this idea of a biblical understanding of, of prayer and how it works and how it's practiced. Yeah. Not in, in line with that, on page 208, um, 
Dr. Dever actually has nine simple statements about the role of prayer and life together at the local church. I'm going to wrap it up really quick because what Nate said, very good. Um, and it kind of rolls right into what he was talking about. Uh, number one, our public prayer life together as a church should grow out of our individual prayer lives. Number two, some of our practices in prayer will vary over time. Number three, some specific words can be especially helpful in leading a church well in prayer. Number four, different kinds of public prayers help as a local church, help us as a local church, rather. Number five, one of our longer prayers on Sunday morning is directed specifically toward praising God. Number six, one of our longer prayers on Sunday morning is directed to leading us in confession of our sins to God. Well, noticing some similarities what we were just talking about. Number seven, it is good to dedicate one of our prayers to asking God to help others and to help us as a church. Number eight, prayer should characterize not only our public services, but also our elders' meetings, staff meetings, and our interpersonal interactions. Meaning, prayer should be involved in all of those things. Number nine, have a regularly scheduled prayer time of each, uh, of each prayer. Well, have a regularly scheduled time of prayer each week. There we go. And expect members to attend. That's a very interesting point, and I don't necessarily disagree with it. I think it's valuable for sure. It's all about setting the um, necessity of prayer, being in a constant state of prayer. So one of the old churches I went to, I won't name, they have had, I don't know if they still have it, they had uh, during one time um, basically a room in the church that at one point was, I think they designed it so it was outside the alarm on the church. And so, like, you, they would just give keys to people who would come after hours. And then the building was open all day, pretty much seven days a week, where you could come to this room and whenever you wanted and pray. And we don't want to focus on a building too much, right? But it was it's nice to see that the church would offer that to, like, set it tone or, like, if multiple people were there. Kind of like a hospital has, like, a chapel that people can just go pray. It's It's nice to have that availability now that's not definitely a requirement i don't know that it was used appropriately or i don't even know how much it was used honestly um but it was just interesting to see that they fostered that in their their idea of prayer that is, i like that idea okay we got one more yeah. one more mark to go we do yep mark nine that rolls into well mark nine a biblical understanding and practice of missions now I'm going to give a direct quote of what missions means. Uh, you find it on page 213. Um, Dr. Deborah, mission, uh, quote, direct quote from Dr. Deborah. Missions is not a word we find in the Bible, but it is a biblical idea. Missions is taking the gospel across boundaries, especially the boundary of language. While evangelism is telling the gospel, sometimes to people who don't know it, missions is evangelism in a place and among a whole people where it's largely unknown. So, and then further, this mission is nothing less than to transform the nature of humanity, which that's a quote he had from uh, another source, which I can tell you that later on. But, so, it's having a proper understanding of what, that's what a mission, I like how he start, starts out with defining what it is, after, after introducing the topic, of course, because he does a really good job of transitioning in between topics where it flows really well, it's not too choppy. Um, so again, Dr. Deverett. If you do end up hearing this, first of all, that'd be awesome. Praise God. Um, understand, I hope, you know, as a review, we're taking, you do a very good job of rolling through things and transitioning well. So just want to highlight that. Let's see here. So once we have that understanding of missions, 
he talks next about what should churches do in missions. And he has seven ways your local church can pursue a biblical practice of missions. Number one is learn about God's word, learn about God's word and God's word, God's world. My goodness. So again, for clarity, number one, learn about God's word and God's world. So, and he says, we begin the word and we begin with the word and the big picture we've been considering. So and again, he's talking about specifically his church, which acronyms are CHBC, so Capitol Hill Baptist Church. This is something that pastors deliberately teach the congregation. So again, they start with the word of God and God's world, right? Number two, pray for the spread of the gospel in other places. Notice that word, pray. We start with the word, we go to prayer. We, and this is, again, a direct quote from number two. We want the gospel to be central, not just in our sermons, but also in our prayers. As, as we saw in the last chapter, we cannot consider what it means to be a mission-sending church without thinking specifically about prayer. And he says specifically at his church, our mission's work is intertwined with our prayer life, which I think that's a very good point. Number three, plan to make your church increasingly useful to the spread of the gospel. And he sees, and this is a direct quote again, we want to care for other churches. A biblical understanding of the church as an assembly is helpful in this. When you make the mistake of thinking that having one church means living one preacher, it means having one preacher rather than one assembly, you unwittingly inject a self-focused competitiveness to your relationship with sister congregations. I'm going to reread that because it's a very good point. When you make the mistake of thinking that having one church means having one preacher rather than one assembly, you unwittingly inject, so you don't unknowingly insert a self-focused competitiveness and your uh, relationship with sister congregations. Meaning now your view is you're competing with them as opposed to you're assembled with them, maybe at a different location, but you are on the same team. I think it's a very good point. And it's something that, especially in the West, we easily lose sight of. And again, I don't mean to hammer the West. The West is not, just like the East is not a perfect place, neither is the West. But since we're in the context context of the West, um, we are surrounded by that idea quite frequently. Uh, number four, pay to support those who go out for the sake of the name who, of the name who can't or shouldn't support themselves, right? So again, number four, pay to support those who go out for the sake of the name who can't or shouldn't support themselves. So the phrase for the sake of the name comes from one of John's epistles. This is a direct quote from 3 John verses five through eight. Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all of your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testify to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God, for they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that we may have fellow workers for the truth. And he he gives another example of how the Philippians supported Paul. This idea that we should be burdened helping these missionaries. Number five, send pastors and others to help establish churches in gospel-needy places far away. So again, now we're talking about sending personnel. Number, uh, wait, slow, I'm sorry, it's loading. I'm getting direct care. Uh, number six, care for those you send. And he makes a good point. Like, we can care well for our supported work and for our supported workers only if we know how they are doing. So again, that establishes a need for communication and then addressing needs as they arise. Number seven, wait for a faithful witness to be well-established and help those sent out 
to endure. Number seven really surrounds patience, this idea of being patient. Because um, it's very easy, again, to think of it as dollars and cents. Like, well, we're supporting them. We want instant results. <clears throat> Usually quality takes time, right? And we're doing this for the sake of the glory of God. That should be our focus. So it, it, we should be there to endure to the end, right? To set it up and take pains with it, right? As Paul implores Timothy, take pains with these things, right? Exhort yourself, pour yourself out in these types of things. Um, Nate, anything to add here as we transition to a close? No, I think we we are in a good spot here. Um, I would encourage it though, if you've never been on a missions trip, you should find your way into one. Um, as someone who had one and would like to go on another, it's been a few years since I've been on one, but I'd love to go again. I'd love to take my kids and and go. Um, I don't know if that's in the cards for me anytime soon, but I I think that it's just very eye opening. Just the world is very eye opening, and but seeing what other people are doing to spread the gospel in in parts of the world that are exceedingly either less fortunate or exceedingly hostile, especially when you look at some of the Asian countries like China, um, seeing what, what is being done for the gospel there is really incredible and seeing the way the church grows. Um, so I, I think that churches should support missions. I think that, um, how they support missions is important. And i again, that's not going to look the same church to church, but are they doing so biblically? Do they, they have biblical expectations of missionaries and so on. Yeah, well, even to your point, in those seven points, he does address specifically what they do at his church, uh, but he also expounds much more than what I was able to do, um, giving examples and ideas. Because again, it does kind of depend on the situation that your specific assembly, the small assembly, you know, the local body finds itself in. To your point, Nate. But again, I, I highly recommend, before I hand this off to Nate and we close, I know we're running a little bit long. That's okay. Um, if you haven't, I would encourage you to read this book um, because even our review, while it hopefully helps, it doesn't do it justice because it's a 273-page book where he really gives a lot of good context. Um, so I think it's worth a read. I would, on that note, I would definitely also agree uh, especially if you're in a situation where you feel you need something like that. If you're, if, if you want to read just to read also a good book. Um, but I think if you're finding yourselves at that crossroad prayerfully, I would, I would definitely add that to your, to need to read soon list to maybe help influence, uh, with the, with the spirit and the, and the guidance of scripture alongside of that, um, over top of that to, to use that as a, as another resource to help guide that. Absolutely. potential issues that you're you may or may not be having and I, I would again talk to people around you talk to your fellow members talk to your pastor um to get a real a real bearing or hey you read this book and you see that one of these marks is not really existent at your church and maybe that's that's uh an encouragement for you to go meet with your pastor and say hey I don't, I don't see how we're doing this here. Can you, can you explain to me how you do this or what is your philosophy on this or how can we maybe implement this or how can, you know, we do different, something different to maybe continue to be more biblical. And so yeah. in any, any instance for any believer, I think you could find an application for this. So that, that being said, again, I would recommend it. 
I appreciate everyone sticking with us. Obviously, our book reviews are have tended now to be a little bit longer than our normal shows, so we appreciate you. We appreciate your patience. Um, we may try and shorten these. We'll see how things go as we get some feedback on our on our current shows that are out. Um, as always, you can submit uh, email c- comments, concerns, questions. Uh, prayer requests, anything really at all, to fortitudeintruth316 at gmail.com. Make sure to subscribe wherever you are listening, uh, if you have not already. And if you have also not, please share this with friends, family, anybody who you think might benefit um, from some encouragement and some discipleship uh, from us. We we would love to be a blessing. We would we know that God is using this somehow, some way. Uh, and we, we trust that his word goes out and, and will accomplish whatever he has for it to accomplish. Uh, that being said, uh, let's close in a brief prayer and let you be on your way wherever it is you may be going. Father, we thank you for such a wonderful um, gift that you've given us in, in your word, in, in the world that you've allowed us to live in, in the gifts that you've given some of our fellow believers in writing books. Uh, about you and about scripture and about continuing to to guide us as we stand on the shoulders of, of those who've gone before us. Lord, continue to give us discernment as we use some of these resources. Continue to refine us in our daily walks to become more like you. But in all things, we ask that we would do everything that you would, that we would give glory to you in all things for you to serve it. It is your holy and saving name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you again for joining us and we will... Be back here again next week.